This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, a bill that aimed to give new trials to 1,500 people who are serving prison sentences based on non-unanimous jury verdicts was killed in a committee hearing at the Louisiana legislature. After the recent approval of the Pfizer vaccine for kids over the age of 12, the New Orleans Public School District expanded its summer COVID-19 vaccine program to include those students. A New Orleans City Councilman is initiating the process to place a ballot proposition before Orleans Parish voters in November that would renew an expiring affordable housing property tax. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crestel. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen's here. Hey, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein is here. Hello, Michael. Good morning, Carolyn. So starting up with criminal justice first, Nick, last week the House Committee on the Judiciary at the Louisiana Legislature rejected a bill that would have given new trials a shot at parole for the over 1,500 people still in prison on non-unanimous jury verdicts. What happened at the hearing last week? Yeah, at the hearing last week, the, the House Committee rejected this bill. And it was an interesting hearing because, so, so as you said, this, this bill was, was designed to provide uh, relief for, for around 1,500 people who are in prison on non-unanimous jury decisions. The Supreme Court has ruled non-unanimous jury uh, verdicts unconstitutional, as we've talked about, and uh, the state has now mandated that all that all uh, jury verdicts must be unanimous. Um, but there's still this this group, of, large group of people that are in prison on them. This bill was was designed to um, give them a shot at parole or vacate their convictions, and in which case they would either be facing a new trial or would have to negotiate some sort of a plea deal with the district attorney's office. But the the bill was rejected. It was an interesting hearing. I was at the legislature uh, last Thursday when it took place. And part of what was interesting was that there, there was about an hour of testimony on the bill and all of it was uh, in favor. So there were advocates, there were um, people who had been in prison on non-unanimous jury verdicts who were eventually exonerated um, because, because they had convicted the wrong guy. Um, there were family members of people who were still in prison and there were even uh, victims of, of crimes in which the person was convicted on an unanimous verdict who were advocating that this, this law be changed, um, even though it meant that, that someone who, uh, who potentially committed a crime against them could, could be getting out of prison. And none of the legislators spoke, spoke said anything negative about it. There was a, a, some questioning. Um, there was a lot of support from, from the Democratic side. And then when it came to a vote, it got voted down 7-5 on party lines. Um, so it was, a, it was kind of an incongruous thing. And I think, you know, especially for people who were hoping that it passed, and in particular for people who had loved ones in prison on, on these verdicts, it was uh, sort of startling and, and I think, I think uh, really disappointing to, to say the least. Right. In person, no one was there. Lots of people in support of this bill no one in person anti this bill, but there was uh, a letter that was signed by, I don't know what percentage of of the district attorneys in the state that were not in favor of this bill. Is that right? Yeah, so it was, I mean, at the hearing, there was was two cards submitted in opposition. One was by Lauren Lampert, who was the head of the Louisiana District Attorneys Association, and one by an individual DA throughout the state. 
But the DA's association has been the, the major opposition to this bill. Um, and I'm not exactly sure how their process works, but what happens is their members basically take a vote on, on how they how they stand on, on certain issues. And then through their leadership, they, they lobby legislators. So that was the primary opposition. And the, what the district attorneys argue is that this would be one, it would be too much of a burden for them to go back and, and relook and retry all, all these 1,500 cases, um, and that it would you know cost too much money, and that also it would be asking too much of victims of, of crimes to have to go through this process again and potentially have to testify again. And you know many of these cases are, are decades old, and, and people have ostensibly put, put them behind. So that, that was what what is sort of the opposition in my conversations with Lauren Lampert um, and, and some other folks who are opposed to it, that's what I've gotten. But, but really none of that, none of that came out at the, at the meeting. And that was a, a little bit surprising to me at least. Because they, you knew what the, the background was, but no one was willing to speak up about it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I talked to the bill's sponsor, uh, representative Randall Gaines, who is the, the chairman of the judiciary committee. And he, you know, he said basically no one wanted to go on the record as being opposed to something that they knew was right but thought was maybe inconvenient. And, you know, I don't know if that's if that's the reason that no one no one spoke out or articulated the reasons for, for denying the bill, but that was his explanation. And, I mean, it was interesting because this bill had been heard once before in the Judiciary Committee, and there was one representative, um, Charles Owen, who really came out strongly, you know, what appeared to be in favor of the bill. And he said, you know, he, he said basically, I don't care what we need to do if we have to have a fake sale to, to you know, fund extra attorneys to get this done. Uh, he said, you know, he basically said this is a moral thing that we need to do. He said, the God that I know says he hates uneven scales and that's what I'm operating on. So this, that's, that's what he said at the previous meeting. And then during this meeting, he sort of remained silent for the, for the duration. And then uh, when it came time to vote, he voted against it. Wow. Yeah, so I, I caught up with him after the meeting and was kind of said, you know, asked him what that was about, uh, what, what appeared to be this change of heart. And he said, you know, he said he had to get, he had to talk to the district attorneys and the judges and the sheriffs and try and work something out. And, you know, I asked him, I said, how come they weren't at the meeting today? And he said he, it, that that really bothered him. So, yeah, it was, it, it was an interesting uh, seeming sort of change in heart. I think in your story, you mentioned that 80% of the folks that are in prison, over 1,500 people that are in prison on these kinds of verdicts, 80% of them are black. Yeah, that's right. What percentage of the lawmakers are black? Well, all of them who voted against this were white. Um, and I believe three or four who voted in favor were black. And your story also mentioned that of of the Republicans that were there, they all voted in opposition. Who wasn't? How many people weren't there? I believe there are two representatives who were not who did not vote. Uh, one of them is an independent, and another, I believe, is a Republican. Okay. What next? Is there any other possibility for recourse for these prisoners? So I think now what's going to happen is a, a large majority of these people have, have filed post-conviction relief applications in their districts, asking individual district attorneys to vacate their, their convictions. 
And as, as we've talked about in, uh, before, that's what's happening in New Orleans. Uh, the district attorney has decided independently to go ahead and vacate uh, all non-unanimous jury convictions. He's going through and reviewing them. And then, you know, like I said, either negotiating plea deals or, or, or potentially going forward with a new trial. District attorneys around, that, around the state have that ability. So far, it doesn't look like any of them are, are taking it upon themselves to do that, um, but they could. Uh, and I think that, that advocates are going to be pushing it at the local level to try and try and get that done. These cases also will likely go through the court system and end up and, and end up being uh, decided by the uh, Louisiana Supreme Court. And the Louisiana Supreme Court could go ahead and decide that that it's required that that DAs give people new trials. They don't need to follow the decision by the United States Supreme Court. They they could independently mandate it. How likely is that outcome? Do you think? Uh, I would say that that is, is, is quite unlikely. Unlikely. Um, the other, you know, the other thing is that I think advocates are going to be bringing this bill, uh, you know, in subsequent years, probably every year from here on out to try and get it passed. And we'll see if, the, if you know, a changing makeup in, in, the, um, in the legislature could, uh, could maybe, maybe, maybe change the outcome. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, education reporter Marta Jusen, and government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, I'm Charles Maldonado, editor at The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That means you can count on us for truth, fairness, and accuracy. But in order to do this work, we need to count on you. Please make a tax-deductible contribution to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Okay, Marta, up next in education, NOLA Public Schools announced that they have expanded their mobile vaccine program to students as young as 12 this week. Talk about the expansion and how the program is organized. Yeah, so the district uh, has partnered with uh, multiple different healthcare providers, so Ashner, um, DePaul, New Orleans East Hospital, uh, to come to school sites and provide vaccines. And I, I know they were very excited this week to lower that age threshold from 16 to 12. So uh, we had some little summer school kids show up who were maybe a little nervous to get the vaccine, but I, generally people are excited that uh, we're getting more shots in arms. So yeah. they're available at, at most schools, it seems like, for summer school. Okay, and you went to KIPP? They had a media availability at KIPP on Tuesday of this week. Maybe too many... Uh, camera people were there because <laughs> there were multiple kids who were too nervous which is one of the things that uh really dislike about uh, covering schools but um <laughs> there were plenty of teenagers who were totally comfortable to get the vaccine and then um some squirmy smaller kids who were very nervous so <laughs> everyone was very professional and nice and it turns out it's actually pretty easy for uh parents and kids to do this they can sign a release form online so you don't need your parent to be there with you to to be able to get the vaccine. Oh, that's great. Were they all Pfizer and Moderna? Do you know? 
Or were there any it's Johnson just, and Johnson? Just Pfizer at this point, which has been cleared. That's what they're offering. Yep. And I actually, I had the same question yesterday, and they were like, "It's just Pfizer. What are you talking about?" And I, I think Moderna has applied for the younger age group, but is not yet cleared to be be given to them. So this requires the second visit. Right. So that's how they decided which um, school sites would be good targets. Is was their summer school program going to be, you know, twenty one days long? And I think that's why they're really trying to get out there this week. Uh, so they can do that first dose and then come back at the end of the summer school program and be able to have those same kids in the class who are there for the for the May and June programming. Right. Okay. And school year's winding down now. What are cases doing? So case numbers were much lower than they were the week before. Um, I think there were six cases and about 50 quarantines, which is way down from the you know hundreds of quarantines we had the previous week. I think I'm, I'm going to guess that's due in part to some reduced reporting, you know, kids have graduated, the school year ended midweek last week. So I, you know, I don't think this is really kind of a, I wouldn't say this is like a true reflection of what we're seeing in the city. Um, It's probably a little bit lower than what we're seeing. Um, I know that's something that, you know, our healthcare reporter has been looking at is if we lose this data in the schools, what does that mean for what we know about what's happening in the city? Right. We've been talking about that for a couple of weeks now. What is the answer on whether or not they're going to continue to report during summer summer school? So I have been asking that question. Um, and what we finally got from them on Tuesday was, quote, per administration, we are currently working on our summer COVID-19 plans. So we still don't quite have an answer. Um, hopefully we are going to get, continue to get data or some sort of data. Um, you know, obviously this is going to be important because if Cases are still present and quarantines are still necessary. Kids are going to miss portions of summer school or have to take it virtually. So it it very much is still front of mind in terms of how the virus is going to affect academics. And um, especially with one third of students, you know, 13,000 students expected to show up for summer school this summer, you know, that's a lot of kids. Right. And now that it's opened up to this age group, do you know if when school starts again in the fall, is there any talk about including this vaccination on the list of you must present your vaccination proof in order to enroll in school or to to matriculate? I have not heard any talk of that yet. Um, I know, I think we've seen across multiple states, it seems that I would say lawmakers seem pretty hesitant to have requirements like that. So I think I would be kind of surprised. Um, I do know that, you know, Loyola University is requiring it, you know, but that's a private university. So that's kind of a different situation. And when all of this started, when the vaccine started, especially for educators, you know, the state superintendent came out and said, we encourage people to get the vaccine, but this is not something we're going to require or make a value statement about. So I would be pretty surprised to see schools require them. Okay. Before we wrap up education, I'm going to throw you a curveball here. Just the big story this week about um, Superintendent Henderson Lewis stepping down. Can you comment about that? Was that expected? You know, I was pretty surprised to see that. I I think anytime I see someone stepping down this year or planning to step down, I, I think about working during this last year and, uh, you know, potential, I don't want to necessarily call it burnout, but, you know, a long time, a lot of work. And I, I know this was a hard year for people, myself included, I think everyone. So I always wonder about that. I haven't specifically asked him though. Um, he did say, you know, the time is right. Um, his daughter just graduated from a New Orleans public school. Uh, I think he's pretty close, if not 
um, having met the requirement for um, the teacher's retirement system pension. So that could potentially be a factor. He's served in schools for a long time. So I'm not exactly sure. Also, I, I manage running a district of the size, uh, you know, through unification of the, the two, the recovery school district. And this is um, probably pretty stressful. So yeah, I, I haven't heard any anything otherwise, but um, those are just kind of my initial uh, thoughts. <laughs> and he gave a year's notice, so I'm sure the search now begins, which probably right. should be yeah. adequate time to find his replacement. Yep. All the right. search will be really interesting because this is a we have a brand new board, so it'll be their first search. All right. Well, thanks, Marta. Thank you. Michael, uh, City Council starting the process to renew an affordable housing tax that expires at the end of this year. The Cantrell administration has different plans. They had opposed something like this in the past. Tell us what the background is on these five property taxes that are expiring. Yeah, so so the property tax rate that, that property owners pay every year, just to give some background here, um, it's made up of a bunch of smaller property taxes that are called millages. So a lot of these millages are dedicated to certain you know things. So a lot of the property taxes you pay go directly to public schools. Um, some of them go directly to the sheriff or the levy, a lot of the money that you pay in property taxes has dedicated sources. Now, five of those smaller millages that make up the overall property tax rate um, are expiring at the end of this year. And they're worth, you know, combined between, you know, 20 and $30 million, somewhere, you know, in that ballpark. So, you know, the way that you renew a property tax is the city council has to place a ballot proposition um, on the ballot, and then a majority of Orleans Parish voters need to approve it. So the five taxes that are expiring at the end of the year, they go to various places. Um, so far, the only one that looks uh, like it's it's really on a, a solid track to get renewal is um, the, the library tax. So one of these um, goes directly to the public library system. It's actually the biggest of the five expiring taxes, bringing in around $10 million a year. That is almost certainly gonna be on the November 13th ballot. It has the support of both the city council and the mayor. And library taxes historically have done well um, in Orleans Parish. So nothing's for sure, but chances are pretty likely that the library tax you know, will get renewed. Now we haven't really heard any news on the other four taxes um, until last week. Um, and so now a city council, so one of those five taxes is for uh, housing and blight. Um, so it can be spent on rental assistance for, for low-income renters. It can go to cr- giving incentives to developers to create affordable housing. And then it can also go to, to blight remediation. So, you know, um, destructing blighted homes and things like that. So now uh, council member Kristen Palmer has put forward a um, resolution to kind of start the process to renew it. And how much money are we talking about a year, roughly? It brings in in between three and four million dollars every year. Okay, and what does this new resolution do? And and what has Mayor Cantrell said about it? Yeah, so so this resolution is a very it's it's a, a very initial procedural step where they are announcing their where the city council would be announcing their intent to vote to put this issue on the ballot at a later meeting. So a very, very initial step. This isn't even putting it on the ballot yet, but it is you know, starting that process. And it is, I think most importantly, um, sounding off to the mayor that the city council is interested in this. 
Now, I got a short statement from the mayor. The administration's position is that basically they don't want this to go this year. So, you know, we had talked about how the library tax is moving forward. And then you have those four other, you know, property taxes that bring in 10 to $15 million a year. Instead of renewing those this year, what the Cantrell administration wants to do is let those expire, kind of regroup next year and see what they want to do with that money. You know, again, it's worth 10 to $15 million that goes to a variety of things, including uh, housing, traffic, uh, and street lights. Um, so, you know, the Cantrell administration might be looking at that money and saying, you know, are there better dedicated uses that we want for that? Now, Kristen Palmer, the council, Councilwoman Palmer, her position is, well, if we do that, we're giving up, you know, again, 10 to $15 million a year, three to $4 million just to affordable housing. You know, another argument is that this year, if you put up, if you put these taxes on the ballot, you can sell them as a renewal. Um, if you do them next year, you're going to have to pitch them to voters as a new, new tax tax hike. Um, so it becomes a little bit tougher. So I think that uh, so so Councilwoman Palmer is aware of the mayor's reticence on this. Um, when I spoke to her, um, basically what she said is that this will start a process where if the administration really wants to oppose this, that they can come to the city council and tell them where they're going to find three to four million dollars to fill in the gap for affordable housing next year. Um, because, you know, again, from Kristen Palmer's standpoint, we've had an affordable housing crisis in the city for a long time. It's, it's fairly well established. Um, but now coming out of the coronavirus where people have racked up a lot of rent debt, uh, we have an eviction moratorium that's expiring. Um, she argues that these affordable housing dollars are really needed, you know, right now. I, I think that the councilwoman seems open um, to the idea of, of if the mayor really wants to wait till next year, but then would want some assurance that they're going to find money from someplace else to fill the gap. Okay, so if I, if I understand correctly, if the mayor's strategy wins out, or if it were to win out, everybody's property tax would go down next year while they're regrouping to figure out how to get that money again? Totally. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and, and it seems, you know, this is kind of conjecture, but it seems that no matter what, um, that tax is going to go down. Because again, we're talking about um, just the affordable housing yep. um, um, tax here, but there's still three others that are expiring that we haven't heard any plans for. Right. Um, and it seems that the mayor is trying to hold on to those, you know, that that kind of that money to kind of redirect next year. Um, but again, they're going to face that battle of having to, to sell this as a tax increase. Can you talk a little bit about the politics here? Has anyone else thrown in with Palmer on this? Yeah, Councilwoman Helena Moreno is also signing on to this resolution. Um, so kind of putting her support behind this effort. Um, but again, the politics here, um, it, it's unclear whether, you know, the strategy here is actually to try and put this on the ballot without the mayor's approval or whether they're trying to force the mayor's hand to dedicate three to four million dollars in extra funds um, to affordable housing next year. The politics also get a little strange. I mean, so, so when we're talking about these five expiring taxes, um, the Cantrell administration had tried to renew these last year, um, but their renewal proposal also included taking 40% of the library's budget um, and giving that to other sources. And voters ended up rejecting that plan last year. And after that, 
The mayor basically came out and said, we're not trying again next year. And that's all the information that we had gotten. So again, it, it was unclear at the time, you know, what the strategy was about not trying this year. Again, it is much easier to sell taxes as a renewal rather than a new tax. Right. Um, to Marta's earlier point, I don't know if it's pandemic uh, fatigue. They have a lot going on. Maybe they just couldn't spare the, the energy and the resources to get it done this year. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in terms of waiting a year, you know, again, like we talked about, you have to sell it as a new tax. And number two, you lose out on, uh, you know, $15 million next year. So I'm not really sure what the mayor's strategy here is. Um, I think part of it is she wants to regroup and, and, and you know, um, doesn't feel ready to put anything forward at this point. Okay. So there's a little bit of a chess game going on, and I guess we'll we'll see where the pieces start to move. Yep, we'll definitely follow it. Yeah. All right, well, thanks, Michael. Thank you. All right, everybody. Have a great week. Thanks for your work. Thanks, Carolyn. See ya. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom, Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Krastel, Marta Jusen, and Michael Isaac Stein. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.